Libby Writes with Brian Scott Libby. Transcripts can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What's up? Happy Wednesday. I'm Brian Scott Rippey. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippey Rides podcast. Got a packed Wednesday show for you. We've got Tony Sukalis back on, Alabama beat writer for Bama Insider, the Alabama rival site over there. Talked a lot of Bryce Young, what's happened with Alabama through four games, really Miami and Florida, how Florida was able to make Alabama look a little bit human and move the ball up and down the field despite being somewhat one-dimensional and then sort of parlayed all of that and how it relates into this matchup, the Kiffin-Saban thing, and a lot of stuff in between. So good interview. Always enjoy talking to Tony. Really appreciated his time. So I think you'll enjoy that. Hopefully it will help you learn a little bit more about the Crimson Tide and the way they go about things. And on both the offensive side with Bill O'Brien as the offensive coordinator and then Pete Golding in this 3-4 three, three, defensive scheme. But before we get to that, we're going to do an open – on Kiffin, this program, and kind of how this game has come about. I don't know. I've just thought about that a bunch over the course of the last week. And then after the Tony Sukalis interview, I uh, have a, a segment inspired by a message board thread, which I don't even know if you could call a segment. I'm just going to share a couple of stories based on something I read while bored at work over there, uh, bored at work yesterday. So thanks to uh, the Rebel Grove uh, subscribers for the uh, content inspiration honestly part of it is just going to be their content so i appreciate that as always on horror stories and in youth sport so got that going um before we get to the open one remind you podcast brought to you by skybox sports picks who is skybox sports picks well glad you asked they're the world's best gambling handicapping website the inventors of the skybox matrix interval an advanced modeling mechanism that has propelled skybox to the top of the industry nine in one nfl week for skybox this week they're 19 and six uh year to date against Scott or on the NFL this year, you need to check these guys out. Not sure what you're doing if you're in the wagering game and you're not using Skybox. They were plus 7.8 units on NASCAR this weekend. That seems pretty good. And they are six and one on the Rippy Wright's free play so far. They had a three and a week this week. So if you're not tuning into the Friday show, you're missing out on free money. I would recommend just buying the full season package for all sports and cashing in on nine and one and seven and oh weeks like Skybox has had over the last three, two of the last three weeks, check them out. Skyboxsportspicks.com. They're going to have a picks package that fits your price range, crushing it on all sports. Use the promo code Rippy and you get 20% off podcast. Also brought to you by LB's university Avenue across from Kroger. Go see Greg. If you're a Rippy right subscriber, Rippy rights.substack.com. You get a newsletter three to five times a week. From yours truly and a 16 ounce prime strip for 15 bucks plus a five dollar pack of sausage. That's a hell of a way to kickstart your football watching this weekend. Maybe you're gonna throw something on the grill, turn on Ole Miss Alabama. Uh, definitely probably break out the brown water uh, with that game going on. But check them out. LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. All kinds of great sausages, seafood, Lane Train special, Keith Carter special. LB's is the best. Oxford is so lucky to have it. Don't go to Kroger. Don't go to any other butcher shop. LB's is the best way to go. Greg wants to make sure you have a fantastic grilling experience. So check them out. Today's open is about how we got here and hope and belief, but not really in the sense that you would probably think when I say that uh, I'm not really into the whole rah rah emotion aspect of college football. That's not really my job, although I can appreciate the pageantry and everything tradition and everything that comes with it and why people are more kind of deeply ingrained in college fandom than they are uh, NFL fandom. Certainly it seems, but today is more so how did we get here? And what I mean by that is how did we get to this game and to this point 
of Ole Miss going to Tuscaloosa with a puncher's chance to win against the greatest dynasty we've seen in the sport in a year where they're not really down. I know that's been kind of the narrative. They look a little more human, like there'll be more competitive games, but Alabama's not down by any means. Look at Bryce Young and what he's done so far this year. Look who they have at running back and look who they have at linebacker. You don't need to tell me to, you don't, I don't need you. You don't need me to tell you to go up and down the roster and prove my point of why they're not down. So how did we get here? 13 games into the Lane Kiffin era. I find that interesting. It's been something I've been thinking about. I went back to a wedding in Oxford last weekend, and this game was all anyone wanted to talk about, uh, really, uh, the entire time. Uh, what do you think they have a shot? I think they're going to win. I think they'll make it close. Like any ranging opinion out there, I heard it over the past weekend. And it made me just think about less about the results of the game and how it was going to turn out, but how we arrived here so quickly. Because I don't – like a month ago, I didn't necessarily think this game would be – Competitive is probably too strong of a way to look at it because it was competitive last year. I didn't think Ole Miss necessarily ever really stood a chance winning despite that being a seven-point game in the fourth quarter. But the way that game was going, it was more so how did Ole Miss keep scoring rather than, oh, my God, are they going to win this game? Because they couldn't stop any, Alabama. I think Alabama scored on like eight of eight drives in the second half. It was it was not competitive in that sense in terms of the result ever being in doubt, but Ole Miss was just continually making them sweat by marching the ball up down the field. This year feels different, right? I think Ole Miss actually has a shot to go in there and beat Alabama and win this game and kind of vault themselves as the front runner in the SEC West. That's kind of what I'm talking about in terms of how did we get here. Again, 13 games, less than a year and a half in the Lane Kiffin area, and Ole Miss has a shot to be talked about and actually has a shot to contend for the SEC West. How in the world did that happen? Because that's the hope, right, when Keith Carter flew down to Boca and brought back Lane Kiffin. That was the hope, but that hope is there every time someone hires a coach, but it's not really tangible and real. And I think that's part of how we got here. And it's like, well, what is hope? Well, hope is the, you know, people gathering up at the airport after Kiffin gets hired or you see it with any coach and fired up just the fact that he's there. Hope is something new. you see it with professional sports teams all the time. Right. I mean, it's a little more, cut and dry in terms of what professional sports teams are selling you because they're selling you hope because they want you to keep keep you invested keep you buying merch keep you going to games why play the young quarterback draft the young quarterback move on from a guy after two three years if it doesn't look like it's going like anything to sell hope and keep butts in the seats because you know hope directly translates to butts in the seats in all sports particularly in professional sports College is a little bit different just because you have kind of the emotional tie to the alma mater. There's other sports where it's almost good in basketball and baseball. You can kind of palette football not being great for, you know, a couple of years. I'm not saying football is not king. Don't misconstrue what I'm saying. But you get what I'm saying. It's not as cut and dry as just trying to sell hope to get people to continue to come to Ole Miss football games and buy into the program because you can have buy-in without success. Look at Florida State, though you could probably argue in terms of actual financial capital, they maybe not are playing the game at the level is required this time. That's not really the point. You're still selling hope at the college level, but it's a little bit different. And how, like, how did Lane Kiffin get here? How did we get here? Well, he took that irrational hope, I think. The irrational hope of people being at the tarmac at Oxford's tiny airport that I've hit a billion golf balls onto with the old left-to-left. I'm a left-hander. Um and he's turned that into and the, the rational hope of people drinking beer at his opening press conference at 11 o'clock on a Monday during finals week. If I'm not mistaken, I wasn't still in school then. 
but he's turned that into real rational hope. And I think that's the hardest thing coaches battle these days because hope buys you time in this business. And as the money continues to get what it is in college football, I mean, every time they sign a check or a new TV rights deal, the money's only going up and it's only going to continue to go up. It's one of the few things I'm not sure there's going to be a correction on anytime soon. And as the money goes up, the time allotted to these coaches to build something is getting smaller and smaller. I mean, look at Joe Moorhead at Mississippi State. He won eight games his first year. I can't remember if it was six or seven the second. It doesn't really matter. And he's out of there because it looked hopeless. Like it didn't look very good. He wasted a national championship caliber defense and it didn't look great offensively. And there was no hope of that changing. There was disciplinary issues within uh, the locker room, some culture issues. It didn't, it wasn't, it wasn't going anywhere. It was sort of hopeless, even though they were going to bowl games. That was a little weirder example. So they made the change. And the way Kevin's been able to do this, clearly Heisman level quarterback that they've taken from kind of a guy with a lot of talent and molded him to an actual you know, complete quarterback. That's a good decision maker and is in complete command of the offense. He's replenished the talent pool and the defensive side of the ball, which made the switch to the three, two, six. He's done all of those things, but he's also like kind of made Ole Miss an exciting brand again. And, you know, if Ole Miss had gone four and five last year and they barely, they do it by getting blown out by Florida, destroyed by Alabama, you know, lost by two touchdowns to LSU. Uh, maybe, I guess, lose one. You shouldn't to Auburn. You can leave that one the same. You know, scrape by Vanderbilt, win by 10. Uh, scrape by a bad South Carolina team. You get where I'm going with this. The four and five, all four and fives, particularly in that weird COVID year, are not created equal. But the way Ole Miss played, the, the scoring of a gajillion points, the fun offense, the different ways they use guys, including the pianist turned quarterback, turned wide receiver, uh, Jared Ely, like, you know, Henry Parrish, some younger players, the fun way in which they use them and the fun brand of football Ole Miss plays, I think has also played into this as well. And so what is exactly my point in all of this? I don't really know. <laughs> I don't know if there's some sort of end point that comes with all of this other than to kind of, I guess, underscore the fact that what Lane Kiffin's been able to do in 13 games to get this program to this point of playing a game that matters and has national relevance and, you know, being able to sell the hope of oh, could Ole Miss make the college football playoff? I'm not forecasting that Ole Miss has played three games and they haven't really played anyone good, although Louisville looks a little bit better. I'm not forecasting that by any means, but you wouldn't be crazy to think it, right? That's the kind of hope that Kiffin's selling. It's like the top shelf rational hope is as opposed to, you know, Evan Green label at the bottom, right? Like with Matt Luke, when he was hired, and I think part of the reason he wasn't given the benefit of the doubt was people didn't like to hire from the beginning. But even if you didn't like Matt Luke from the beginning, there was never really any realistic hope that he was going to turn Ole Miss into a program that ever really had a consistent shot to go to Atlanta, right? That hope was never really there. Unless, and if you believed it at any point, it was that irrational hope and you were probably one of those people standing at tarmac when Giffen got here. And that's not shaming anyone that was out there. I'm just saying it wasn't rational. And so I think that's why he didn't get the benefit of the doubt. I don't think that's why, you know, there are a lot of empty butts in the seats. And look, there's a lot of reasons for that. He kind of had to deal with the NCAA stuff and people were exhausted from that. And, you know, there was a little bit of apathy starting to percolate with freeze and that carried over with him. It wasn't all complete because he was incompetent. There were other factors working against him, but that rational hope 
of taking the program to the next level and uh, competing for championships in a lopsided sport from a competitive balance standpoint was never there. And ultimately, uh, that's probably why Keith Carter elected to pull the trigger and go ahead and make the change. Whereas Kiffin has bottled up that hope and sold a lot of it, the rational stuff, the good top shelf stuff in a very short amount of time. I mean, you probably out there listening to this believe Ole Miss has a chance to win this game on Saturday. Think about how wild of a place that is from where you were this time a year ago, because Ole Miss, I mean, it's not a perfect parallel because of COVID and all that. I don't think Ole Miss, well, I guess Ole Miss had just played their first game this time a year ago against Florida, but 365 days ago, this would have seemed ludicrous, but they do have a chance. They have a chance to go in there and win. I don't know if they will, but they have a chance to make noise and shake up the SEC West and contend halfway through year two of Lane Kiffin. And I think that's a remarkable thing to achieve in this day and age in college football when coaches aren't given time to build anymore. You have to build fast and you have to build in a way where people can kind of see the seeds of the finished product or the outline of the finished product um, early on. And it has to look cool and it has to look fun while you're building it. It's like, I don't want to go like Colin Cowherd here, but like, you know, if you're building like a roller coaster or something, I don't know. I'm not an architect. Like it has to look cool in the process of building it to where if it looks boring and shitty, like you're probably going to get canned before that thing's complete. And I just think that's a remarkable thing to be able to do. And I think there's only a handful of coaches that are out there today that are able to do that. And Kiffin has done that in spades. Ole Miss is still not where they want to be in terms of a depth perspective and overall talent. Uh, you know, within the program, right? I mean, you just look at the talent of these two schools across the board, Alabama and Ole Miss, these two teams right now. It's not very even, um, really even on the offensive side. If you just look at it from recruiting rankings and stars and all of that, it looks a little more balanced because of what Ole Miss has turned Corral into, what they have at running back and what they've turned some of their receivers to. Part of that is kind of the genius of Kiffin. But you still believe you have a shot to win the game on Saturday. And I don't think that should be discounted. Um, I just think it's a remarkable thing that Lane Kiffin's kind of been able to flip this thing that quickly. And I think one of the things that's lost on it is generally just the belief you have a chance because, and this is not me doing the white flag. You should just be grateful you're here thing. If you're an Ole Miss fan, I, I don't really buy into that mentality at any level of sports. And I'm certainly not going to tell you how to feel as, you know, as an Ole Miss fan that just always find that to be weird. I'm not, so don't mistake it for that. I'm just saying, as you kind of enjoyed this week and enjoy the buildup to it, Take a look around and you you got lucky. You have a big boy adult running your program, right? Because everyone's out there selling something. I mean, do you want to get sold a bottle of Mississippi made again? Or do you enjoy this more? And I guess that's all I'm getting at is kind of look around and enjoy the buildup. You have a chance to go you know, plant your stake as a favorite in the SEC West in year two under Lane Kiffin. And there's not a whole lot of programs out there that are drinking the bottle of hope that you're drinking. There's just not. And I don't know how this year turns out. Could it end up being a little bit disappointing? And, you know, the defense isn't it, as stacked up as, uh, or as, as improved as we think they are right now would be a better way to describe that. Sure. But at least the rational belief is there that you could go in and beat Alabama and you can beat everyone on your schedule. Because again, in a world where millions and millions of dollars are poured in to reach the level Alabama has, and really millions and millions of dollars are poured into new guys to get there. They're having to sell this, you know, rational hope 
I guess, in the process to kind of build what Saban was able to build. I don't think anyone's ever getting to that dynasty, but you get to my point. The same four teams that have, you know, 20 of the 28 bids since the college football playoff started, there are millions of dollars being spent to try to get a seat at that table. And, you know, the majority of those programs don't even really have the hope to get there. And so I guess that's what I'm getting at from a fan side perspective. It's kind of take a look around this week and enjoy the ride because there's not a lot of other places that have that rationally. I think Arkansas is included in that. I think A&M is this year. Like those teams aren't going anywhere, but you can make a case that Ole Miss is going somewhere. Again, I don't know how this game is going to play out, but the fact that you have a shot is kind of the point. And the last thing I'll add on that is it's translated to the player side of it. Selling actual belief amongst the players is something that I think is as rare as the first side I was talking about in terms of selling the program to fans and outsiders, because yes, any coach can go in there and give sort of a rah-rah speech and, you know, everybody love everybody type of thing. And you'll hear them give decent canned sound bites of, yeah, we can believe we can win this game, but that's not really real. You know, who was able to tap in and actually make, you know, not as talented guys believe Hugh Freeze. Uh, you know, the 2012 Egg Bowl speech was calculated. I mean, look who was standing in the back of the room from a recruiting perspective, but he was a good motivator and he was able to get these kids to buy in. And it's easier to do that when you're seeing results on the field and you're competitive. Whereas if, you know, you're Matt Luke and you're trying to sell that at the same time as, you know, the only teams you're beating in the SEC are Vanderbilt and Arkansas, that's a much tougher sell. But Kiffin has done that with the players. I don't think you need me to sit here and go on a rant about how the players love Kiffin. I mean, I, I just go look at any sort of social media. But I think the belief part is real. And I think the way you can see that is in what you've heard some of the players say leading up to this week. Last week, it was Jerry Ely who said, I know, I don't, I, something to the effect of, I don't think there's anyone out there that can beat us but ourselves. And, you know, I'm actually a little bit surprised in today's day and age of kind of click thirsty media that that didn't go around and make its rounds is a whole bulletin board material, you know, you know, a block of fine bomb today type of thing. But it's not that he doesn't think that Alabama is, you know, a great team. I think they all realize that. I think they're all realize they're up against one hell of a challenge and probably a little bit outmanned. But at the same time, it's the belief that if they do what they're supposed to do, they're going to have a chance to win this game. You heard Corral talk about it. I just got done before I recorded this open watching his press conference from, I guess that was Monday but started talking about, you know, he, he had a quote where he stopped halfway in between and rephrased himself to where he said, we're not really worried about playing Alabama. And then he paused and it was kind of like, well, I don't want you to take this and run with it. What I'm saying is last time, I think we're a lot worried about the challenge of, Oh my God, we're going up against Alabama going up against Nick Saban, where this is a little bit more inward focused. He said, we're worried about us having a good practice today and doing everything we need to do to get in position to play well, to have a chance to win. And that's the belief and buy-in amongst players that I think is a little bit more rare because just look at this route. You don't have to go anywhere else you know, for an example of this other than the last seven years of this rivalry. I think in 2014, Ole Miss absolutely believed they had a shot to beat Alabama and Oxford, and they did. And then the next year, I think they were you know, a little more dynamic offensively with Chad Kelly at quarterback and not only believed they had a chance to go beat Alabama, I think that team thought they were going to walk in there and kick their ass. And they did through three quarters. I know the game got a little closer at the end, but that was real belief. Maybe they thought they had a shot in 16. Honestly, I don't really remember a lot about the buildup to that one other than I did think Ole Miss had a chance. Can they got up 24-3 and the defense really failed them. But after that, 2017, no one thought Ole Miss was going over there with Shea Patterson to 
Tuscaloosa and playing a competitive game? Absolutely no one. And you could kind of see it on the guys, not see it in the guys' faces. That's not fair. The way that was built up in terms of, you know, whether it was the Vegas line or just talking to the players, you know, the week of, it was like, yeah, they're good, but we're going to go in and give it our best shot. You know, that's a different quote than, yeah, I, we're just focused on ourselves because if we do what we need to do, I think we can win the game. That Those two things are very different. 18 was the same thing. No one except for Barrett Salee thought that that game against Ole Miss, between Ole Miss and Alabama and Oxford was going to be competitive. Yes, Ole Miss fans, you'll always have that 12 seconds of DK Metcalf streaking down the sideline going up seven to nothing. But did anyone actually think that game was going to be close? No. And that's kind of the same thing. If I would go back and pull up some press conferences or old audio I have in my phone from that week, it was probably a, yeah, well, they're a great team, but you know, I believe in our guys and I believe in our chances to go up and, you know, put up a good fight against them. You know, the classic, they're just another team type of thing. Whereas, you know, that's kind of hollow. That doesn't really ring true to anything. And I don't think that's real per se. Whereas, you know, Corral saying we're focused on what we need to do every day to be prepared to play this game and have a chance. I mean, listen to him talk. You can read between the lines. They believe it. And, you know, Jaron Neely saying, I think, you know, only team that can beat us is ourselves. Well, that's not, I don't think literally what he means, but I think that's evidence of that real belief. And I think Kiffin has sold that to the players as well, because if you look at the talent across the roster, as I mentioned, it's still not there. It's still not what you need to compete in games like this on a consistent basis. But the fact that this group believes they can go in and win this game is exactly what's so rare and so hard to sell. And Kiffin's done it in a short amount of time. So the fact that the players think they can go over there and win, and the fans think they can go over there and win. And Ole Miss has a legitimate shot to play a significant factor in deciding the SEC West is the entire point of this. Enjoy it. All right, here is Tony Sukalis. We got into the actual game, not just kind of the intangible, how did we get here part. All right, we now welcome on Tony Sukalis. I guess now recurring uh, guest of the podcast. I appreciate your time. As always, covers Alabama for the Alabama Rivals site there going to talk what is probably the one of the early most anticipated sec games of the season maybe you could call it the most anticipated sec game of the season depending on your thoughts on florida and alabama certainly a game that's huge from an old miss perspective really the first big game unless you really wanted to talk yourself into the 2017 old miss alabama thing in over half a decade for the rebels looking forward to this matchup looking forward to catching up with tony again what's up man Hey, man, uh, I'm excited about this matchup, too. I mean, uh, I think both of these teams, you know, haven't really, I guess, maybe Florida. But, you know, I just I, I think this is the game, the first game of the season that everyone had circled uh, for both teams. Uh, you know, just not only on the field, but, you know, you've got the the Lane Kiffin, uh, Nick Saban matchup off the field. Um, it's kind of weird, too, some of the subplots. Uh, I, I know they're not really close, but Bryce Young and Matt Corral, both Southern California kids that are playing in uh, – um, in the deep South, it's kind of funny that that, that kind of happened the way it did, because I mean, it seems like Alabama and uh, Ole Miss are always matching with quarterbacks. It's like they, they, they both had the two Hawaiian quarterbacks. Now they have the two Southern Cal quarterbacks. <laughs> I guess you can always judge uh, whatever Ole Miss is doing with their quarterbacks. I guess like two years later, Alabama is going to have that, <laughs> that style of quarterback, I guess. I've never thought about it like that too. Like going all the way back to, to Tamu and of course uh, Tua. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about it from that perspective. 
Yeah, it's it's certainly the most anticipated, like more anticipated, as you were kind of saying before we came on air. And I think part of that was actually because of the Florida game. You know, it the way the all, Miami game played out, right? That's your classic early season matchup, neutral site game. Miami was ranked, and in reality, we didn't like. It's all the, all of those goes uh, always with those games. Excuse me, I can't talk today. You don't actually know a ton about either team yet, and of course, Alabama just steamrolled them, so it was kind of. I think the casual college football fan kind of had the perspective of like, oh, shit, here we go again. It's kind of like Alabama and whatever one of two other teams across the country that might knock them off in the playoff. And this is kind of a kind of a wash, I guess, from a regular season standpoint. And then they looked a little bit human against Florida, um, particularly it seemed like up front a little bit. And then Florida was able to score some points despite being fairly one dimensional. And so I think that probably added to the intrigue of this game a little bit. And before we get into the matchup, directly we talked in the summer just previewing Alabama and covered a number of different topics it's it was an interesting Alabama team where they're certainly as talented or more talented than pretty much anyone they play but it it wasn't like it wasn't going to be a a, I guess front end of the two deep you're starting 22 of like all the draft ready 2022 guys littered across the board it was some names you were going to get familiar with but not quite yet I just got to start with the open-ended one. Is there anything that has surprised you about this Alabama team through four games? Hmm. You know, it, it actually has been a, a lot like I thought it was going to be. Um, I'm trying to think of if there's anything that's super surprised me that, that stood out. Um, you know, at, at first I was, I was going to say Henry Tuatoa really kind of uh, – kind of caught me by surprise with how quickly he caught on he was hit or miss against Florida like a lot of the defense was so I guess this is a big game for him to kind of kind of go back to that you know elite status that you know he, he showed against Miami um, but yeah I think it's it's pretty much everything's gone to the the script of what I thought it would go to I mean Bryce Young's been amazing um, you know I, I think you, you saw some of the players that I think I talked about before Jamison Williams has been that home run guy that Alabama needed to open up its offense. Uh, the running back, the running game has been kind of split the carries. And um, I, I guess if you're going to look surprising, uh, I didn't expect uh, Jaleel Billingsley to start his season in the doghouse. And now we're finally seeing him break out. He had a hundred yards against uh, Southern Miss. Um, that was, I guess, one of the more surprising parts of the season was him having such a slow start. But now that he's starting to roll at the tight end position, I think everything's kind of, Kind of checking out the way that I thought I would. You go through the Miami game. Miami didn't really offer much of a fight. I actually was kind of going back, and I tried to watch the full game, and it ended up coming a little short on time and went to one of those, like, condensed things you find on YouTube. And in the first half, it wasn't – like, Miami's defense, I'll give them credit, wasn't terrible. They were just so inept offensively, and really it seemed like up front Alabama just manhandled them. That game was more lopsided – then maybe it looked from just a strictly Alabama offense versus Miami defense perspective. Miami's defense was just on the field so much. And then you, of course you have, I forget who they played in the middle, but then you have the Florida game. What, I guess between that time period between Miami and between Florida, or I guess after those two games, did you think of this team any differently after they left the swamp kind of factoring in what you'd seen in the opener against Miami? I can't believe you forgot about the mighty Mercer Bears. Dad, there it goes. I, that uh, was just on the tip of my tongue. <laughs> no, um, you know, I think after that Florida game, 
it kind of brought the defense back down to earth. I, I, I think there was a lot of talk, you know, myself included, about how um, good this defense could be and, 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 you know, how it could possibly be one of the best defenses Nick Saban had. And it was kind of exposed against a, uh, a pretty one-dimensional Florida team. I mean, I'm not going to downgrade that Florida offense because that running game is elite. But the, they leave a lot to, to be desired in the passing game. And I, you, you would think that an Alabama defense, you know, as talented as this one, would be able to compensate for any kind of running game if there wasn't a passing game to balance it, you know. Uh, but that, that wasn't necessarily the case against Florida. I, I didn't include Alabama's defense in the surprises yet because I, I'm not ready to, to write them off just yet. I still think that, that this could be a very elite unit and maybe that was a bad day at the swamp. And let's not forget too, that was kind of like two different games in, in Florida. Cause at first Alabama was really, you know, dominating the Gators and it was 21 to three. It looked like it was going to be an absolute blowout. And then Florida was able to go on these sustained drives and, and that's how they got back into the game. And then Alabama had uh, three straight three and outs. So that, that's kind of an interesting game to kind of look at from an Alabama perspective. But uh, when you when you do kind of break it down, you feel a little bit less confident in this defense coming out of it uh, just because, you know, if, if you, you have to think Ole Miss can run the ball really well, you know, and they can also pass the ball. So, I mean, if Alabama can't stop Florida's running game, what makes them stop uh, Ole Miss's? And then, you know, if you have Matt Corral to add to that, I think that's where, you know, you get some of the Alabama fans being a little bit concerned heading into this matchup is because um, Ole Miss has a way more balanced attack. And so if, if you come out with that kind of performance, you know, second quarter on against Florida, I think Ole Miss has a really good chance of beating Alabama. Yeah, I'm glad you went there with the part where you're talking about where it looked like, yeah, okay, they're going to roll again. It's 21 to three. And then, I mean, honestly, it, I mean, it, it was a pass interference, but if that pass interference down the right side of the field doesn't get called on the fourth down when it's 21 yeah. to three, that game may not end up close at all. And granted, it was a pass interference, but I was just surprised the kid, I can't remember who it was, fouled him because it seemed like he was in pretty good position. Like if that doesn't happen, you know, none of the rest might happen because at that point, Alabama gets the ball back and you know, Florida's defense looked a little bit gassed. But in that period, when it became 21 to three, and then it became 21. I guess it was nine because the kids shanked the extra points. But Florida got a couple stops in there, and Alabama's offense looked a little more stagnant. What do you? What did you kind of see? What Florida was doing defensively, or what Alabama wasn't or was doing offensively that kind of led to them being a little bit stagnant throughout the? I guess you could call it the middle part of that game to allow Florida to climb back in it. Yeah, you know, I think Florida's really strong up front, and maybe that that helped and. Um it seemed like Alabama got a little bit more conservative, but it's just like, you know, those things kind of snowball, you know, I think you, you let the crowd into it a little bit and then, you know, things get harder and, you know, one turn a three and out turns into two, three and outs. And, and then, and then it also on the, on the flip side, you go three and out street three straight times in the defense. It, it, it kind of reminded me of that game against Clemson in, in 2016 in the national championship game, or I guess it might've been the 2017 national championship game, but um, where the, the defense was just so tired. Um, and, and that's, I think what allowed, you know, Florida to come back on, on, on offense. And I, I, I think it was more just a case of um, kind of letting things snowball and, 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 in, uh, there were some discipline issues, you know, there, there was a few false starts 
you know, costly penalties here and there throughout that whole game. And penalties are something, you know, you mentioned that pass interference, both sides of the ball. That's something that has kind of derailed Alabama at times this season. So um, that didn't help if I remember right. Um, you know, when you look at Alabama's offense, though, I mean, it moved the ball when it absolutely needed to, and it got the, you know, obviously did well enough to win. Uh, but during that one period, if I remember right, there were some penalties and, um, you know, Florida just also has a good defense, you know, especially up front. Absolutely. And so it's, it was funny. I was going back and I watched that game obviously live the first time, watched some bits and pieces of it again afterward. And then today, as I was kind of prepping for this interview, I went on YouTube and got one of those condensed games up and those things kind of crack me up because they're not a good indicator of getting a feel for the game, but you can kind of see if you're looking for one or two specific things, like what kind of worked and what did not But then all of a sudden, like it mixed into the 25 minute highlight thing. You'll just have a punt that that was called for a fair catch. It's like, I appreciate you including that in there. Not sure what the point was, but with that being, (laughs) with that being said, you mentioned Florida's running game being elite and that opening up a lot for them. And that's kind of the takeaway I had leaving that game, watching it the first time, but kind of going back and when it was showing Florida's plus plays and what got them back in the game and kind of some of the bigger chunk plays, it seemed like that running game got Alabama off balance a little bit to the degree where I've never been huge on Emory Jones, particularly as a thrower of the football beyond like 10, 12 yards down the field. They had some guys, they being Florida, had a few guys kind of able to get open and run loose as Alabama defense got deeper into that game. Did you kind of see the same thing? Whereas Florida had more success running the ball, it seemed like by default they had more success throwing it. And as simplistic as that sounds, I was just surprised at the amount of separation there was between the Alabama secondary at times and a couple of the Florida receivers kind of running loose. And a lot of it wasn't even on schedule. It was just kind of finding a guy once the play broke down. Did you see something similar in that at all or kind of off base with it? Yeah, I think, you know, if if I remember right too, there's a lot of poor tackling on Alabama's part in that game. And so I think at that point you have to stack more people in the box, commit more people to the running game. If if the people in the box aren't getting the job done. And then I think, like you said, naturally that's going to lead to um, a, a better passing game from Florida, which, which it did. And I think, you know, from an Alabama perspective, it gets scarier when, you know, yeah, sure. Emory Jones couldn't exploit that, or I guess he did, but not to a, not to an extent where they could win, you know, he couldn't exploit that, but you'd have to think that a Matt Corral could, you know I mean? Um, that's, and especially with Ole Miss's offense, uh, you would have to think that Lane Kiffin has a plan that if Alabama still struggles with tackles and, you know, and, and Ole Miss has three backs that are all really good, uh, if that similar problem happens to Alabama, you'd have to think that Ole Miss would, would do a better job of, you know, really at that point exploiting the passing game. And so those those big plays you saw against Florida could turn into like touchdown plays uh, against Ole Miss. Is there one particular, like if there is some sort of, we talked about in the preseason, as you mentioned earlier, about this potentially being one of Alabama's best defenses ever under Saban. Through four games, if you could identify like some sort of weak link or something that would concern you, whether it's matchup specific for Ole Miss or just kind of in general going forward, is there something that sticks out? Because I know they lost Chris Allen to injury, but the Drew Sanders kid seems like he's played pretty damn well. Like they didn't miss a beat, and the linebackers seem to be really the strength of that team, both from not completely a pass rushing standpoint, but man, are they good kind of disrupting guys in the backfield, particularly on the edge against the run. I guess I'll go strength weakness. Is there something like if you could identify a strength and weakness of the Alabama's defense so far through four games, what would it be? And was it different in the preseason at all or about what you thought? 
Um, well, strength, I, I still think you got to go Will Anderson in the pass rush. I, I know they don't have Chris Allen, but like when Will Anderson's on the field, he's probably going to be the best player on the field, both sides of the ball. So having a guy like that, he can do so much. I mean, he almost single-handedly won them that Florida game on defense. He, he was, was unbelievable. Absolutely. And it's not just, you know, it's not just the sacks or the, you know, quarterback pressures. It's also the, you know, the, his ability to set the edge and, and stop the running game. I mean, he's one of those guys that actually could stop in open space and, and kind of make those tackles. I think when you look at the, you know, the other side, uh, it's discipline, right? It's, it's the fact that, uh, you know that they have those penalties i mean josh job i think was the one that made that that fourth down pass interference and and it seems like alabama does that too much they they give the opposing offense too many things and um that just keeps them on the field uh and and no good no no defense is going to be good if, if they're tired and on the field so much and alabama's got a lot of depth but it doesn't matter you got to play the best guys and they're going to get tired and and so uh, um that, that discipline maybe some open field tackling hasn't always been the best um I still think, you know, they're strong in the secondary when they're, when they're not making penalties, they're strong in the secondary. And, uh, um, you know, you can't really argue with a middle linebacking core that has uh, Christian Harris and Henry Tuatoa. So, um, yeah, I guess we'll see. It really comes down to that discipline, which seems like a fixable thing, but, but now you look at it. Um, it's like, when is it going to be fixed? It's been four games now. Um, you know, another thing too, and I know, uh, Ole Miss lost Kenny Yaboa, but, my God, Alabama just refuses to cover tight ends. Uh, so um, that could be something that maybe Lane Kiffin exploits. Um, it just seems like whoever, you know, Alabama might have the best tight end in the game, uh, you know, in, in Julio Billingsley. Um, it, the second best tight end is usually whoever they're playing against because they, they just can't guard them. So um, that's something that maybe Ole Miss could look at. Yeah, Ole Miss is, but Don, you know, that probably speaks to the point of, Right now, I'm not sure there's two better guys in the country or programs in the country from an offensive perspective of adapting to their skill players' strengths. And I guess what I mean by that from an Ole Miss perspective, I mean, Alabama it kind of speaks for itself, given the way they've evolved over the last decade and when it came from, you know, the, the I mean, Blake Barnett's not a great example, but kind of the run and defense thing to, oh, my God, how many NFL receivers do they have on the field? Kiffin's kind of taken a, a page out of that book in the sense that last year they used the tight end a decent bit with Kenny Yaboa, and he was a good player. I think he probably rode the wave of some early season success and wasn't as strong later in the year, but they don't have that skill set at tight end this year, and they've kind of supplemented that with Dontario Drummond, who's a receiver, but he's got a pretty strong base, particularly in the lower body, and they lose him in some H-back situations, and they've kind of created a – I guess a pseudo tight end spot, if you want to call it that. And that's what I'm fascinated to see in this game too, is there's, these are two of the best offensive minds and or offensive programs in the country and kind of catering to their team strengths. The last thing I'll ask the defensively before we kind of flip to the offensive side of the ball, I think one of the biggest matchups in this game is Ole Miss is probably decent in terms of their two starting tackles, but there's not a lot of depth there. And those guys have been kind of susceptible at times, and you mentioned Anderson, he was unbelievable in that Florida game. Like you said, I think he almost single-handedly won it for him. And, and it wasn't just the pass rush. I mean, there are a couple of times where Florida tried to get to the edge running the ball, whether it was like an option concept or just trying to sweep it a little bit. And he 
not only did he destroy the tackle, whatever help they were sending on the other side, that guy was either missed his assignment or was just a complete non-factor. It's pretty unbelievable. And I just think if Ole Miss is, excuse me, if Alabama is probably going to exploit Ole Miss uh, in a sense defensively, it's the fact that they're going to bring a lot of pressure on the edge and Corral's not going to have a lot of time to make decisions. I think, you know, if he gets sacked five, six times, I think pretty much all that came from the edge. Would you agree or do you see it a little bit differently? Yeah, I think, you know, Alabama's pass rush really does come up from the edge. And even if it, you know, uh, even without Chris Allen, too, uh, you know, Drew Sanders is another guy that can do that. You know, they've got Chris Braswell. They, they've got a lot of guys that can come up the edge. I mean, um, you could blitz up the middle with uh, Henry Tuatoa. Um, they also got like Tim Smith. I think he got banged up in the last game. He's a defensive tackle that kind of can provide that push up the middle. Fidarian Mathis can do that, but really the defensive linemen haven't been able to, I don't think they have that like Christian Barmore type guy that they had last year that really provides that push up the middle. And I think you're right. If, if there is going to be that pressure, it's going to come off of one of those two um, outside linebackers that kind of sometimes serve as like almost defensive ends themselves. Um, I, I do see that being uh, where, where the pressure probably does come from. Let's talk some Bryce Young because it was interesting given the way the game times have played out and travel and some other stuff. I haven't been able to see a ton of Alabama outside the Florida game and bits and pieces of the Miami game. And obviously, why would you watch them play the mighty Mercer Bears? They just keep catching strays on this podcast, but that that's okay. And, of course, Southern Miss last week. I just probably wasn't flipping the channel to that one. But you look at his raw numbers, and the only thing that stuck out to me was, you know, nine yards a completion. I think it was like 9.3. And that's not, like, that's not dinking and dunking it by any means. But that's also not, like, at times what you're accustomed to seeing where you look up at points during particularly the two-air, and even at times hurts where you look up and be like, how many yards is he completing for a completion? Like, it's kind of ridiculous. But then as you watch more and more of what they do offensively, it seems to be that's kind of what – I don't know if that's what the what Bill O'Brien and the system is calling for or just been how teams are playing them and been what's open. It just seems a little different in years past to where you mentioned Williams has kind of been the deep threat, but they don't have like two or three of them where you're scared to hell of them kind of beating you straight down the field. But from that nine – 15 to, you know, eight-yard range, he's been about as accurate as possible – what have you just kind of seen from Young so far through four games in his, you know, college career, I guess would be the best way to describe it, but clearly just kind of his starting career. Yeah, there's been a lot to talk about his, his deep passing and it hadn't been there. Actually, I think he was like three of five on 20 or more passes uh, against Southern Miss, and it really should have been four or five because Jamison Williams, the interception that Bryce threw, it hit him off the chest and that should have been a catch. So, um but I think more so the the lack of big plays uh, has been kind of there's been a lot of factors with that. I mean, Alabama is definitely not as fast at receiver as they used to be. Obviously, Jamison Williams is absolutely a, a burner, but you know, there's there's not like you said multiple guys. I think Alabama wants JoJo Earl to be one of those guys, and he's kind of working his way into that offense. And once he really starts clicking, I think that you might see more of those deep balls. Um, obviously you saw that a little bit more against Southern Miss a lot because the talent level wasn't there. Um, Bryce is certainly able to hit those plays. Um, some of it has to do with, he hasn't been as, as accurate as he can be. Some of it, he's had a couple drops on deep passes. Uh, there's been some penalties and then the offensive line. I think part of it too, is the offensive line really hasn't given Bryce the time it needs to. 
Um, and so you, you look at his numbers, he faces a ton of pressure. And he, the thing about Bryce is he's so good at it. Um, he's, he's almost, you know, better under pressure uh, just with his way that he can, you know, kind of, ex, you know, make a man miss in the, in the backfield. And then by that time, things are open downfield, you know, for, for a pass. Um, he's really great at that. Uh, I do think that, you know, Alabama would like to, I don't think this is like a change though in uh, the offense where they're suddenly going to go small ball on us and, and not really hit on those deep passes. I, I think they very much want that to be a thing. It's just hasn't necessarily opened up. And then I don't, if, if Ole Miss is going to drop, you know, eight people back in coverage, I don't think it's going to, to really open up this week. I think you're going to see a lot of dink and dunk, but that, that will probably be more to do with, what the defense is giving Bryce than his ability to, to, to air it deep. Um, the good thing for Alabama, especially in this matchup is Bryce young. I think he's thrown it to 11 or 12 different targets. I think it's 11. Um, and so, you know, he's really good at finding the guy. It's, a, you know, in the past you saw, you know, Jalen hurts and he, he would almost like lock on to, to Calvin Ridley. And if Calvin wasn't there, he'd probably take off and run. Bryce is not that Bryce will scan the whole field, go to his third, fourth option. It seems like all the time. And he's got a really great field awareness and um, that allows him to hit the open man. So it's really hard to scheme against that from a defensive standpoint. Yeah. The part in particular you said in the middle there, where you're talking about, like, I guess it's, it's not an incapability. It's just the fact that you mentioned it hasn't been there because if you watch the deep balls that he has thrown, I tried to find as many as I possibly could. I hope I got close to all of them. It's, it's not that he's incapable of doing it. In fact, I was actually somewhat rather impressed with a lot of the actors. There were a couple that were kind of off, off the mark, but it just seems the fact that it may be some of what they're playing them. And I, I, this is not a perfect example, how defenses are playing them, I should say. This is not a perfect example, but I was reading a lot after the Chargers beat the Chiefs the other, uh, the other, not other day. And it's about like team, the article is about how teams are playing kind of the too high look against um, the Chiefs, because they're just so deathly afraid of their speed and they're kind of making them have the 12, 13 play drives and forcing them not to make a mistake. And I just wonder if there's a little bit of that um, with Alabama this year, even though they don't have kind of the second and third burner that they've had the last couple of years. Uh, Williams speaks for himself. What is it like almost 25 yards a catch? I think he's got 12 catches for right at 300 yards. But like beyond that, it seems like the guys that really can kind of hurt you kind of find space in the middle of this field, whether that's Billy, the tight end or Mechie. But it's, it's not an incapability with Bryce Young. One of the things that I've been impressed with so far is his calmness, because you're right. There have been some times where his offensive line hasn't given him a lot of time to throw. And when the first guy gets in his face or he has to step up or back or whatever the case may be, like you mentioned, it's not like Jalen Young, I, excuse me, um, Jalen hurts and where he just takes off and runs, he will kind of move around and keep his eyes downfield. And that's when some of their better yardage plays have been so far. And then at the same time, he's completing 72% of his passes. Is there one particular thing that has impressed you most? That's not like a great question, but he is a young guy. And I've just been impressed by one, the poise and two, the accuracy, even when things break down. Yeah. It sounds like such a, and I've heard it time and time again on the beat. So it's like almost like, monotonous for me to say it here but his poise has just been so outstanding for a sophomore and it's like it feels like every question to Bryce now is about like oh you're so poised or you know how are you, how are you so poised or you know they're asking Nick Saban you know how does he handle pressure so well it's like I'm almost tired of talking about it but you know um he, he really is I, I you know what he's able to do you know, in pressure situations and against actual pressure, like defenses coming at him. Because, I mean, you look at what he does 
in the swamp. You know, he handles that situation just great. That just the, the act, the magnitude of that game, the, the noise of that game, his first college start on the road, uh, or first road start. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, his ability to handle that was expertise. And then also just, I think, you know, I think I don't have the number right in front of me, but um, according to Pro Football Focus, his uh, NFL passer rating um, under pressure is like something like 128. Point nine or something like you know it's like some great number that you would actually wouldn't mind being your actual you know quarterback rating and that's with his under pressure rating which is just you know he's been outstanding in, in, in that regard as well um it, it just goes to that vision I think you know Alabama fans have kind of complained at times that he doesn't tuck the ball and run but it's like why would you want him to if he if he's able to kind of make these plays and and you know the the purpose of the quarterback is to, to get the ball in the, the hands of its playmakers and so Bryce does that, you know, as well as any quarterback that Alabama's had. And that's saying a lot because, you know, you know, it's kind of the same thing Mac was doing, except Bryce can run and they're, they're, they're obviously different quarterbacks, but in terms of getting the ball into the, the hands of the playmakers, um, he, they, you know, they haven't really lost that this year. I probably should have started with this because this is something we talked about a pretty decent bit uh, in our preseason podcast was the Bill O'Brien factor, him coming in, new offensive coordinator. What do you think the biggest difference is in Bill O'Brien from Steve Sarkeesian and what you've seen on the field through four games? You know, it's hard to it's hard to tell because they have different pieces. And so, I mean, you can point to the lack of, of big plays, um, but it's just the 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 weapons are so different. I mean, they don't have a Jalen Waddle at, at first. Um or even really anybody like Devonte Smith on, on the receiving core. It's a great receiving core, but they don't have that. Um, I, I think you could make the argument that, you know, even with Jaleel Billingsley last year, I, I think Alabama's got better tight ends. And I know Bill O'Brien has been, you know, good at using tight ends at, in new England. Maybe the development of Cameron Latu has a lot to do with Bill O'Brien. That's something worth exploring. Um, because he's a converted, you know, outside linebacker who's, you know, I think he's got what four touchdown receptions already through four games. So he's been really productive. Um, so the, that might be another thing, but it, the, the pieces are so much different. You know, Sarkeesian had um, Mac, Mac Jones last year, Tua, even Tua wasn't super mobile. Um, Br- Bryce, um, well, actually, you know, I, I, w- I would take that back. Bryce has been a lot of like what Tua has been, that they don't necessarily rush the ball. Uh, but they, they can maneuver in the, in the pocket um, with Tua. It was more so though, taking advantage of those quick screens. Cause you had Henry Ruggs and, and Jalen Waddle and Devonte Smith all on the same team. Um, and you know, if no one delivered a screen, uh, a, 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 a slant, sorry, not a screen, a slant as well as Tua did. And um, so that was obviously like uh, such a go-to play for Alabama. I don't, I, I don't know. I think you were still, the verdict's still out on the Bill O'Brien offense. Um but I don't, I don't see it as some drastic change from what they were doing with Steve Sarkeesian last year. Do you think Bill coaches in the box so he doesn't get the Lane Kiffin treatment? No, because I think I mean that that's just more more common for. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. I was gonna say I'm trying to think of uh, Lane didn't ke- coach in the in the box, but I feel like the Sark did, right? Uh, I'm I'm pretty sure Sark did. Um, yeah, most, Levy's most the up time. there. It's more common. You don't have to formulate a real answer. I was really just kind of being. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was gonna say most of the time. Yeah, <laughs> most of the time your offensive coordinator is up there. Yeah. One of the things I've noticed, and there was a little bit this way in Sark, but it, from watching 
in covering a little bit of Ole Miss when they were good and actually challenging Alabama in the 2014-15 days. And, of course, you know, we don't have to rehash the talent discrepancy dropping off, particularly on the defensive side of the ball. But really frustrated Nick Saban, the whole lineman downfield, the RPO concepts. And now you look up, you know, five, six years later, and he's doing a ton of that. <laughs> yeah. And that's probably why he's the greatest coach of all time. He's adapting. I mean, I, to use an in-state example, the reason Mississippi State's struggling, and I've written and said this ad nauseum, so people listening are probably tired of hearing me say it, but like, he's not adapting. Like that, that shit doesn't really work in this league where the system is the system. I, it seems more, even more so this year with the Bill O'Brien thing to where whether it's Robinson or McClellan, there seems some sort of run action or RPO or something on nearly every play or pre-snap motion. I i don't know. The way they've kind of utilized the threat of whether it's a RPO or some sort of lateral running play, that seems to factor into almost everything they do on a play-by-play basis. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, and especially with McClellan, I mean, they, they've really involved him in the passing game. Obviously, though, like, I, I don't know. I'd argue that they they did a lot of that with with uh, with Najee, and he was such a factor in, in that point too. Uh, maybe you know, with with a lot of the play action stuff, I, th- I think um, you might see more of that with with Bill. Um, and I, th- I know that's something that Alabama wants to hit on more of moving forward. So yeah, that, that might be a difference with Bill O'Brien, and they they have the tools to do it. I, I really like the like you said some of the stuff that they can do with uh jace mcclellan he's such the the versatile option in in this uh their versatile weapon sorry in, in this offense because you know it, obviously he's a great runner but um it just seems like he's good for one touchdown reception per game or well at least one big big reception per game and he's a nice like check down guy for for bryce to, to throw it to and i think that you know that might be something that they utilize against Ole miss as well um to just kind of uh utilizing him in, in a variety of ways um they've got moving parts that they can you know kind of do some fun stuff with i think jojo earl you know you mentioned uh is a guy that i think you know you could put him into motion and, and maybe do some some fun kind of optiony plays like with with him as well um haven't necessarily seen that but uh, that might be something to kind of keep an eye on moving forward one of the things when you look at the raw numbers of that actually kind of diving into alabama from a rushing perspective it was like you look at it initially, it's like, oh, they use a lot of different guys and it's kind of actually balanced. But I think it's actually it's Robinson and McClellan. And it seems like the other two guys that are at the 20 carry mark, what Roydell Williams and Sanders, is that more the product of them just kicking the hell out of the two opponents they had in the middle? It seems like it's a hell. It's a lot of Robinson, and a lot of McClellan and no one else. Is that pretty accurate? The um, yeah, I mean, those are the first two. Uh, Roydell Williams was actually surprisingly, and if you would have bet on this, you would have made a ton of money. Was the first Alabama back to go over 100 yards this season? He had 100 yards against Southern Miss, uh, last week, and now I think half of that came, he had 110 yards, a half of that came on one carry at a 55 yarder. But, um, it really has been Brian Robinson and Jason McClellan. If you look against the Florida game, it was almost I think exclusively those two Alabama fans have been a little surprised with the lack of, you know, Trey Sanders lately. Um, You know, he hardly featured at all the last two games and it seemed like he had a pretty good game against uh, Miami. I don't know how much of that is, you know, injury based or, you know, they're still working back from that hip injury. Is it, are they trying to lighten the load on him? But you also got to look at, you know, if Brian Robinson and Jason McClellan are doing as well as they are, same thing, I guess, with uh, Roydell Williams against Southern Miss, 
it's kind of hard to take the ball away from those guys. And if they're earning that spot in the rotation during practice, you know, Nick Saban made a big deal. Well, I'm going to play the, the best guy. Well, yeah. And it, it, you know, in Florida, I don't think the game plan was to necessarily stick to Brian Robinson and Jace McClellan as much, but they were doing so well, uh, especially, you know, Brian Robinson was, had a great game that game. Particularly um, out of the backfield, he had a touchdown too. And you mentioned McClellan kind of being the other guy, like the guy mm-hmm. that's more prone to the passing game. But like Robinson is pretty capable out of that way too. At least he showed it in the Florida game. Yeah. Um, he's still more of a downhill kind of, you know, uh, tougher runner. So um, McClellan, you know, I think if you were to, if you're going to throw it out on the flats, right. Um, I think you'd rather throw it out to McClellan than you would Robinson, but yeah, Robinson's definitely capable of catching out of the backfield as well. He just seems to be the guy that, you know, if it's fourth and one and I want to give it to someone, I, I probably turn to Brian Robinson. He's, he's that short yardage kind of guy. To add on to your point with that too, where when, when he gets, I mean, if he gets, if there's a D, you know, they're good up front and they block, it seems like anytime he gets about a yard and a half downhill with some decent space, yard and a half downhill from the line of scrimmage, I should say, it's seven or eight pretty automatically like mm-hmm. that. Would, I mean, that to your point, how quickly he gets downhill was also impressive. Last thing I'll kind of hit on the offensive line, I know the offensive side before we just get to a couple of big picture stuff and wrap up was you mentioned the offensive line and that's probably, if you're looking for a unit to identify of, you know, if you want to have evidence or just kind of point out, okay, Alabama is a little bit more human than they have in years past. It's certainly this group, right? Cause I mean, that unit, I mean, that group these last two years and really just the last five, with maybe like one slight exception, has just kind of demolished folks. And that hasn't been the case this year. And why do you think that is off the top? Like, is there one thing that that kind of sticks out as far as struggles would be a dumb way to put it, but just the fact that they've looked a little less impenetrable than they have the last two seasons? Well, as compared to last year, look, everybody wants to talk about how great Alabama's, you know, three-headed monster of, you know, Mac, Devontae, and Najee was last year, but none of that's possible. That offensive line was absolutely monstrous. I mean, you you had the Remington Award winner in Landon Dickerson and the Outland Trophy winner in um, Alex Leatherwood. You still had Evan Neal on the right side. Uh, Deontay Brown is an NFL draft pick and, and Emil Ekior is a really athletic guard. You lose three of those guys uh, this year. And that, that's just tough to overcome. Um, Chris Owens is doing his best at that right tackle spot. That seems to be a weakness there. You know, um, he just doesn't seem to have as much power as all of them has had at that position. Um, they make mistakes, uh, you know, as athletic as Emil Ekior is. And I, I'm really high on his game. Against Florida, man, he was called for, I think, like, I want to say like three, maybe even four, uh, you know, false starts. And so that speaks back to the discipline uh, of that unit. Um, you've got new starters in Darian Dalcourt in the, at center and then, you know, Javion Cohen at left guard. They, they're both great players and they're, they're, they're going to do fine. But I think just having, you know, back, you know, just three kind of new starters. Like Chris Owens is debatable whether or not you want to call him a new starter. Um, on that line, there's just going to be mistakes. Uh, it's one of those things you keep on saying it's going to gel. You know, I think we're at the point in the season where it needs to gel or you need to start thinking about, is it going to gel? Um, I, I think you should start to see it get better, but if it doesn't, you can't, we can't be here in, in week seven saying, okay, well, the offensive line needs to gel, right? I mean, like at some point it either has gelled or isn't going to gel. Um, I don't think it's there to hit that panic button for Alabama just yet, but you're going to want to start to see some improvement. They, they obviously, 
improved in the running game against Southern Miss. Um, let's see how they do against Ole Miss, which would be a little bit better competition. Ole Miss doesn't have a what you would call, I guess, a great defense, but um, it's, I mean, it's better than Southern Misses. So it'd be, you know, if they continue this kind of establish the ground game a little bit against Ole Miss, maybe that's a positive side moving forward. I think, honestly, Alabama's best opportunity to beat Ole Miss is in two, not beat Ole Miss, punish them, uh, uh, their defense. Because, like, everyone's kind of talked about the improvement of the Ole Miss defense. And, honestly, that's a product of two things. One, they were one of the worst defenses I've ever seen. And the second worst was two years before that. So, like, there was really only one way to go but up. But they are clearly faster. The Campbell kid at linebacker has made a huge difference for them. They're more athletic and they're quicker in the secondary. Where they have not been tested yet – is on the interior, particularly against the run. And they don't have a ton of depth there. And I know that hasn't necessarily been Alabama's MO so far in terms of just absolutely pounding the run, particularly between, you know, the first three gaps, but I don't think they're incapable of doing it. So I'm kind of curious to see if there's a bit of a shift there in their kind of willingness or wanting to exploit that part. The one thing I wanted to ask, though, what's up with the snapping thing? It's not like a major issue, but maybe it was just something I noticed randomly. There's a decent bit of like high and low snaps. What's going on at center? Yeah, I mean, and that's a new starter in Darian Dalcourt. And that has, you know, been, I guess, something that has been brought up. And, you know, I don't know if that's just uh, jitters or, yeah, I'm not like super well-versed at the center position to to kind of tell you like what he's doing (laughs) wrong. Uh, but yeah, uh, that is something that I've heard, you know, you mentioned a lot and, um, it, it, that's another thing Bryce probably has to deal with in, in this whole, in this whole thing. And I think that just comes with the, like I said, the, the newness of this offensive line, like Landon Dickerson was such a rock at that center position that, you know, it was, you took it for granted almost. Is that the classic statement? I mean, the classic question that like, you can't not can't ask, but it just really grinds Saban's gears because it's one of those things I was like halfway joking, but not really like it hasn't been an issue where they're like balls keep going to his feet or over his head, but there's like four or five plays a game where young makes it like a halfway decent athletic play to like kind of corral the snap without it really throwing the rest of the playoff. Like if you're trying to ask Nick when they haven't had a snap, like cause a fumble or something like, do you even like bother? Like, how do you phrase that question to the guy? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's kind of interesting. Um, it, it's funny. I don't know who was the, I don't remember who the center was at the time, but I, I think Young's first career snap against Missouri, if I remember right, was also a bad snap. Maybe it's just like a, maybe they just, they, they don't like Bryce for some reason. I don't know. <laughs> it just seems like a, a, if I remember that play, he like had to like feel the snap and then like juke out, you know, a, uh, a Mizzou defender right away before like dumping off the pass. And then like, it was like the first impression we had of Bryce and it was like, Oh man, this guy's, you know, what, what a play, you know, first, first play. Um, but, uh, I don't know. And I don't know how I bring that up to Nick Saban. Um, but, uh, call him coach probably you, wait until it becomes a problem, I guess. Wait until, you know, uh, you know, they have a really bad snap and, you know, Ole Miss recovers it. Maybe, maybe then it's the, it's the time where you can kind of bring it up more. A couple of big picture things before we get out of here. The Kiffin Saban thing is, I guess humorous would be one way to describe it to where there's clearly a respect between those two and particularly on Kiffin's side for what he did, for what Saban did to kind of help spark this second chapter of Kiffin's career. If you'd like to view it through that lens, but they're one, two very different individuals, two, two very different personalities in the way they go about things at times. 
like the Ole Miss media doesn't ask Kiffin about Saban a ton. That question was probably retired after the first month, month and a half after Kiffin was on the job. But what is Saban's? Because I know Saban's a little bit similar to Belichick in the sense that like, say he seems like a little more ornery with media at times, but when you get him talking about a topic that he's interested in talking about, he's actually quite insightful in some ways. It's not a perfect example, but in different ways, those two are similar in that sense. Do you, does he get asked about Kiffin a lot? What is kind of his demeanor and tone when he gets asked specifically about his former offensive coordinator? I think it has, it's a lot of respect. I, I think he realizes that, you know, you look at the, Kevin was the one that really started uh, this spread out offense at Alabama. And he did it with, you know, people forget, you know, um, when, when you look at the evolution of the Alabama's quarterbacks and the, and the big number guys, it started with Blake Sims. It didn't start with Jalen Hurts or Tua Tungavailoa. Blake Sims put up, I think, you know, uh, you know, at, at the time, I forget the numbers. I think it was like 3,400 yards maybe, but he had like a, a ton of touchdowns. I, I don't have the numbers right off the top of my head, but it was like a, a big you know, perform. It was it was so out of the norm of what an Alabama quarterback usually did. And he's um, a converted running back, right? Yeah. Like that's the point. Yeah, and, and you know, um, for what Lane was able to do with him, and then you know, as you got Lane better uh, players, you know, I, I think that they probably win the national championship with Jalen against Clemson um, with Lane. And then how how does that change? It, you know, if Lane had stayed one more. Uh, game, I think they probably win that game. And then how does that change Jalen Hurts' career? You know what I'm saying? Maybe he develops into more, you know, that, that confidence of that. But um, my point is that Lane Kiffin started all that with Alabama. And I think Nick Saban knows that. And so, you know, I think there's a level of respect that, you know, as good as Nick Saban is and as good as he is at, you know, overcoming different um, obstacles and, and, and changing, uh, Lane Kiffin is really the person that, you know, helped establish what Alabama is and he'll always have a place uh when you look back at you know Alabama's evolution and how they were able to maintain this dynasty I think you know Lane Kiffin's geez uh, you know in the top five most important player you know coaches slash or players I think if you were to take you were the top five most important individuals in this dynasty Lane Kiffin's got to be one of them that was a great answer the way like you kind of mentioned that earlier with that the way that started and i think that's kind of fascinating because you're right like it wasn't the five-star kid that kiffin had to work with early on and i never really like that gets kind of lost in that whole national title game to where kiffin wasn't there anymore so i've never like i guess put as much emphasis on that um or thought about that to the degree to the degree that it probably deserves looking at this matchup specifically it's interesting. These Alabama, like these Alabamas had various iterations of this team. And like last year, I, yes, they had the scare against Ole Miss, but let's be completely honest. Like, yes, Ole Miss put up a ton of points against them. And Pete Golding, that probably wasn't his finest night, but there was never really a moment where anyone rational probably thought Ole Miss was ever actually winning that game. It was just like, how the hell do they keep scoring? How does, like, how is this game being viewed, whether you want to go from this from a fan base or a program perspective? Because there have been years, and I would say last year was actually one of them, where it's like, okay, like they have to play well, but I don't think Alabama is going to get tested all that much until they get to the postseason to where you have an early test against Florida. And because the offensive line looks a little bit human, there's a chance that Alabama gets tested and plays quite a few more competitive games than they have in years past, if that makes any sense at all. How are they viewing this game as well as kind of the rest of the slate with 
A&M, whatever's left of them, and, you know, LSU, I guess, left on the schedule. How do they kind of view this year and years past to where, like, last year it almost seemed after about five games it was kind of predetermined they were going to run the table and make the playoff. Is this year different at all in that sense? Well, and, like, let's start with this game, right? Because there's two ways that, you know, from an Alabama perspective, you have, like, the the chicken little fans who who think that there's nothing – there's no way that Alabama's going to be able to stop this defense – or this, this Ole Miss offense – and, and Pete Golding's the worst thing that's ever happened to Alabama and that they're going to, you know, allow 70 points to, to Ole Miss and blah, blah, blah. Right. And then, you know, you look at it from the other side and, you know, you got people projecting, you know, Alabama, I think what is Vegas having at like 14, which seems way too high. And it uh, started at like 17 and a half. Started, like that seems like crazy. I think this is probably going to be like an eight to 10 point game. Um, I, I don't, you know, you know, I don't see it being a blowout either way, uh, you know, especially not from the Ole Miss perspective, but still like, I, I don't, I don't see it being a blowout. Um, but if, if Ole Miss doesn't beat this Alabama team, who does like, like Good it's point. not going to be, it's not going to be A&M. Like I, I, you know, unless something just drastically changes at A&M, it's certainly not going to be LSU. Um, I don't, this Auburn team under, you know, I think, you know, Gus Malzahn kind of had Nick Saban's number at times. And it seemed like, to be honest with you, um, out coached him in a few of those iron bowls. I don't think Brian Harson's going to be able to do the same thing in the iron bowl. So until George, if, if, if Ole Miss doesn't beat Alabama, then I don't see who does until possibly Georgia in the, in the uh, SEC championship game. That's the next like really game that I could see like being a losable game for Alabama, you know, and I'm just being honest. I, I don't see it with A&M and, um, so I think, you know, when you look at this game, uh, a lot of Alabama fans are kind of maybe looking at it that way. And um, it just seems like the most logical loss on the schedule, if, if there is going to be one, because, um, you know, it's, it's hard to run the table two years in a row in the, in the SEC. Uh, it, and if it's, you know, if they're not going to do that, then it, it has to be this week then. Right. I mean, it, that's just, you know, from, a, I guess, a probability standpoint, uh, that, that's what makes this game, I guess, a little bit more nerve wracking. Yeah, I think you're right. The one surprise in that it, like, is it a matchup thing or is it the fact that it's in Tuscaloosa? I I am I don't know what to make of Arkansas. I didn't think they had the front line talent to. Well, I didn't think they had the front line talent to beat A and M even with A and M's quarterback issues. I don't think they have a chance against Georgia, but I'm also done kind of doubting them. I don't really know what to make of Arkansas. Do you give that any sort of entertainment value at all in terms of it being a potential test for Alabama? I want. Arkansas would be good. I just think that that'd be like really cool. Um, you know, and, and you know, especially it, it, it's crazy too. like, imagine what was it like three years ago when Alabama beat Arkansas and Ole Miss like 62 to three or something like that. Maybe. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> imagine that year. If I told you, well, wait, in three years, Alabama's ne- the, the two best teams in the SEC West uh, after Alabama will be these two teams. I mean, you would have thought it was crazy. So it's kind of fun to see those, those two teams kind of like, come back and really just, you know, perform as well as they did. Um, and then Sam Pittman, man, I, I love that guy. He just seems like such a cool dude. And when he, when that hire was made, it seemed like, you know, everyone was so underwhelmed, you know, cause he had Lane Kiffin and Mike Leach at the two Mississippi schools and everyone was so high in them. turns out Mike Leach wasn't the good hire out of, out of, out of the trio that, that got hired in the SEC West that year. Um, I don't, think Arkansas is as good as and I want them to be but I don't think they're as good as what they've necessarily shown I think Texas A&M is overrated and I think Texas is like born overrated like Texas will always be overrated and so like the fact that they were able to beat both those teams 
I'm not trying to take that away from Arkansas because um, I have a lot of respect for what they've done. But I do think that there's a big possibility that those two teams that Arkansas beat weren't as good as, uh, you know, maybe we thought they were when they played them. And I have to look at Arkansas schedule, but I think that there's a couple of losses coming up for them. Um, I, I, I think they lose to Georgia. And then who do they? Yeah, they have all miss, miss after that. I think that's another loss. And so I think when you're looking at Arkansas, you really got to look at that Auburn game and that LSU game. And if they can win both of those, then I think they have a really great season because uh, I, I think they beat Mississippi State, too. So really almost, you know, if they can take one out of the two between Auburn and LSU, which, to be honest with you, I, I think they could take both. Um, and, and their two losses this or three losses this year are going to be Georgia, Ole Miss and Alabama. They're taking that to the bank if you had told them you're only gonna lose three three games in the regular season this year they would have been you know jumping for joy doing the the woo pig uh you know like crazy um and and i think that's a a really big possibility but i do not think that they beat georgia this week um and i don't think that they beat Ole miss uh, the following week either i agree on your the alabama part of that in particular just because like i just want to get your answer but my thoughts were kind of the same where The other thing about that is like the both of those teams, Texas and Texas A&M have rather benign offenses. And like, I don't think they'll beat Georgia this week, but honest to God, if you said Georgia, Ole Miss, Alabama, who are they like most likely to beat? I know it sounds insane, but I'd have to think about it before I didn't say Georgia, just because Georgia doesn't really like have the capability to light up the scoreboard. And I think Ole Miss and Alabama have the capability to do that, even if Arkansas plays good defense, because they are so limited offensively. Like, there's no really path to old, to Arkansas beating Alabama 20 to 14, right? Like, that's just not really going to happen. I don't think – the like, it's kind of interesting. Like, the reason I think people have discounted Arkansas is because they focus so much on K.J. Jefferson's limitations and not as much on how good and disciplined they are defensively. But I think there's a ceiling to that. And I think when you face – an offense with as much talent as an Ole Miss or an Alabama in particular, I just don't think it works. I don't think it'll work against Georgia because I'm just not sure how they get seven points to some degree. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I kind of agree it, on that sense. Last thing before we get Georgia out of here, how do you see this thing playing out on Saturday afternoon? Yeah, um, well, like I said, I think it's going to be, you know, around like an eight-point game. And I haven't, you know, I, I always think whenever the whenever I'm asked these questions, I always think of them on the spot. So, like, I'm let me make up some some math in my head right now. But, like, uh, maybe like 42 to 34, something like that. Does that sound right? I'm just trying to stick it with eight and be around the, around the numbers that I think it's going to be. So I'm maybe in the same like range. That. I don't think it's going to – you know, whenever you say that these games are going to be like, oh, it's going to be a 90-point game, it just never happens. It's always the games that you don't necessarily think are going to be that. I, I don't think it's going to be um, the over under that it was last year. Um, you know, I don't think it's going to be a hundred point game. I think 42 to 34 uh, sounds about right. You know, the interesting stat here is since the uh, 2015 uh, Sugar Bowl. So of the 2014 season, Alabama played Ezekiel Elliott uh, in Ohio State. Since they lost that game, the only teams that have beaten Alabama, I think it's been six of them. Uh, their quarterback hasn't thrown an interception. So, I mean, that's going to be a key. And that's, that's, that's such an important stat. And I think, you know, from an Ole Miss perspective, uh, Matt Crow hasn't thrown an interception this year. But um, I kind of think that, you know, if, if Alabama is going to win this game, they're probably going to intercept Matt Corral. Um, and, you know, like, I think he's really improved. And um, 
as high as I was on, on Mac Jones last year, you know, in terms of being a pro prospect. And, uh, you know, I got a lot of attention for that. Um, I I'm just as high on Matt Corral. And in fact, I, I think there would, I would not be surprised if he's the number one overall pick at the end of all this. Um, but I do think that, you know, he does still have an interception. I don't think that that problem has been totally fixed. I don't think he's going to go from throwing 14 interceptions to throwing, you know, two this season. And so maybe one of those comes, uh, against Alabama. And I think that if it, is any bit of a shootout, a turnover like that uh, could be key. So uh, that's one of the things I guess I would watch. Uh, can they can they force a turnover from him? And, and, and how much, if they can, how much does that, you know, change the tide of the game? Yeah, I agree. I think it's in that same range. And like, I guess if you want to make like the counter argument for like the path to Ole Miss actually doing this, because there's like multiple avenues, obviously for Alabama is a deserved favorite. Like I honestly, like, I was kind of surprised at the 17 to go into 14 line, but if it were like in the 10 or 11 range, I'm like, okay, that actually makes a decent bit of sense. Maybe that's a little steep, but not like, it's not unreasonable to where, like, I guess the argument like for Ole Miss winning the game would be the offense plays flawlessly is such a dumb word. Cause there's so many mistakes throughout a football game, but like you mentioned, not turning the ball over and kind of the 2020 esque performance of Alabama, not having a ton of answers. And then the defense getting three, four stops and giving them an actual shot. But they haven't done that yet, and we haven't seen them against a good offense. And so until then, I just – like I wouldn't feel good obviously picking Ole Miss, but I'm kind of in the same boat. I think it's an entertaining shootout, and I just think maybe a little bit better defense wins out in the end. But, you know, the fact yeah. that this game's competitive is still kind of blowing my mind, you know, 13 games into the Kiffin area. Or and the spread – to be competitive. Yeah, the spread's such a weird thing too because, like, what happens if this is indeed a shootout and, you know, Alabama goes – up by seven and then you know Ole Miss ties it Alabama goes up Ole Miss ties it and then all of a sudden Alabama you know Alabama finds a crucial stop on Ole Miss and then scores another touchdown then all of a sudden it's a 14 point game but but is it you know what I'm saying right for three and a half quarters it wasn't is it really a 14 point game or did Ole Miss just miss one of them you know what I'm saying so um so I think maybe that has to do a little bit with the the spread being so high is in if you're expecting it to be a shootout sometimes shootouts um the, the actual deficit is bigger than what it was in reality. For sure. He is Tony Sukalis, covers Alabama for the Alabama rival site. Follow him at BamaInsider.com. Tony underscore T-S-O-U-K-A-L-A-S. I appreciate the time, man. As always, I'm looking forward to Saturday. And uh, be well, my friend. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me on. And that was Tony Sukalis. Appreciate his time. Hopefully you learned a little bit. Uh, I did certainly about the tide and kind of what they're doing offensively, particularly under Bill O'Brien and where they maybe looked a little bit uh, human defensively uh, in that Florida game in particular. So anyway, we've got some more Alabama stuff coming down the pipe in the newsletter uh, later in the week and probably something podcast related on Friday. I've got a couple ideas in the works. I just don't want to uh, tease something that's ne not necessarily going to pan out yet. So anyway, appreciate his time. The, uh, the last thing I want to get to today before we get out of here, this was uh, this part was spawned by a uh, by a message board thread yesterday that appeared to have something to do about Neil and his kids soccer game, uh, which I don't think it actually ended up being anything about that. Someone was asking if parents got heated at uh, Neil's kids soccer game uh, based on a hint he may have dropped on the podcast, whatever. Not really the point. But this thread and <laughs> my, uh, my viewing habits on the Rebel Grove message board is kind of evolved i wasn't necessarily so sure about it at first but now sometimes when i'm bored at work it it provides some pretty good entertainment and so this 
made me laugh. The thread yesterday kind of turned into a uh, horror story uh, type of thing uh, with youth sports uh, more so than. And it took one, it made me laugh. I kind of had to stop reading it at work, but it, it also, it also took me back to, I was a youth baseball umpire when I was in middle school and I guess a little bit in high school as well. And like, I didn't have anything as crazy happen as a couple of these stories I'm about to read, but there were, there were quite a few, but man, I just hope someone out there finds a few of these as funny as I do. I have no idea if like the posters here would like me to share their names. So I'll just hold off on that, but just know your content is got not, is not underappreciated because this, this incredibly made me laugh. Here's three, <laughs> here's the, here's three, uh, here's three stories I'd like to share about this. And I'll get to two of my own before we get out of here. Uh, here we go. When I coached Little League Baseball, we had a dad from the other three threatened to kill one of our moms. He was escorted away in cops during his son's championship game. That's peak bullshit, but I have a ton more stories. It's why I stopped coaching that and the parents use me as a babysitter every evening. Yeah, if you're if you're if you're, you know, a little fired up at, you know, Jimmy's seven year old soccer game and hollering death threats at all the side, that's probably more reserved for like a prison yard than it is seven year old sports. That's a tough one. There were two more that made me laugh here. Trying to find it real quick because scrolling through these can be difficult sometimes. Let's see. Oh, here we go. I think these are all from the same guy. So I'll just shout him out. Finn Reb, you made me laugh a hell of a pretty damn hard yesterday. And I couldn't get it out of my head. So I just had to share these because this made me crack up. Here we go. Another time during a playoff game, the opposing team pulled one of their kids older brothers out of the stands and threw a jersey on him. The brother hit two bombs. They won the game. Luckily, one of our parents taught the kid, so we submitted a formal complaint to the rec director. He investigated the incident and forced the team to forfeit, giving us the W and the advancement. The fourth, we were a fourth grade team. The kid was in sixth or seventh grade. This one made me crack up because it's like, what are you doing? Like, it's one thing to like fudge birth certificates and get kids on your team from the start, but you're just pulling guys out of the stands. It's like the bench warmer scenes where the guy Carlos comes out and as the you know the green birth certificate and green crayon. It's I am 12. Like that's, what are we doing here? This, this is just, none of this is surprising, but at the same time, it's, it's jaw dropping. Here's the last one. This one really made me crack up. Lastly, we were destroying one team during a regular season game. And one of the moms marched onto the field and started berating the umpire about his strike zone. It quickly escalated and the female started windmilling the poor guy. Everyone stormed the field. So we're trying to break it up while others were cheering her on. <laughs> Cops intervened and made the arrest. I got my team off the field. Since we left, we were made to forfeit the game. That's a tough deal. You had to forfeit the game because one of the moms just starts wailing on the referee. That doesn't seem fair. That was my last season coaching. My God, what is the scene here? What is it? So if you're storming the field as a mom is just putting a whooping on this poor referee, you sports referee, and you're one of the ones just egging her on, like kick his ass, Seabass. Like, what are we doing here? What does that look like? You're on the field. Like, are you just contributing to the riot? Like, I get the parents coming on the field trying to break it up. Look, it's it's not a great look, but you got to do what you got to do. But if you're in the camp of, you know, just, I guess, egging it on, I don't know, fueling the fire, you're telling the umpire to holler enough. I don't know how that works, Mike. What, what, what are we doing here? Cops intervened and made the arrest. That was a very matter-of-fact way of describing an arrest at a youth sporting event. But uh, I just had to share those because they uh, they really made me laugh, and it brought me back to a couple of stories from 
when I was a youth baseball umpire, I didn't really have anything that crazy happen like that. There was an eight-year-old league one time where I was kind of one of the older umpires at this point. I'd been around the block a time or two, I guess you could call it. And so I guess I'd like to think I was one of the better umpires. Again, this is a bunch of kids in middle school. So I'm not like proud of being like a show-stopping umpire or some shit like that. But like I was a little older and I kind of knew how it worked. And I got a call while I was at, I think, golf practice in high school one day. And like this guy calls me and was like, hey, you got a second to talk? And I was like, yeah, of course, high school, me, my first like re- instinct is going, oh, shit, what did I do? Like, am I in trouble? Is this someone from like Jackson Academy? I'm like, what is going on here? And it's like, hey, I'm, I'm so-and-so. I'm, I'm a head coach of the green team. I was like, the green team? The hell is this guy talking about? It's like, oh, this is youth baseball. And he was basically calling to tell me that they had a game against the second best team in the league. And he was worried about the integrity of the game. And he was wondering if I could get put on the schedule for that game. Uh, so there was just no monkey business going on with the big bad purple team or whatever the hell the opponent was. And I was floored by this. There was no, uh, there was no additional money or bribe offered. So this guy was a real straight shooter in that sense. He was just worried about uh, the integrity of the game. He didn't need Mark Curl's crew uh, screwing up another call and costing his team uh, a chance at the North Jackson youth baseball youth championship of the seven-year-old division. But I guess the story I would contend that the point of that story I would contend would be um, if you're the guy calling an umpire about your kid's eight-year-old baseball game, protecting the integrity of the game, you might be part of the problem regarding the integrity of the game and the kind of, uh, I guess the way the league is run and perceived. But anyway, I had another incident where a guy just stood behind home plate the entire time with a gigantic stick. Uh, I don't know if it was used as an intimidation tactic. I'm just saying, I don't know if it wasn't. It was kind of a uh, Mr. Larson, happy Gilmore situation. He didn't really say a whole lot, although he didn't bend the stick like he bent shooter six iron. But uh, I think he was just there to let me know that, you know, if this doesn't go down correctly, I, I will use this stick. So, you know, watch that tag call at third base. Because again, if that doesn't go down the right way. There could be violence. That was a weird one. Um, had a guy really just kind of have a meltdown on me one time about a call at first base that was like clearly correct. And I'm not even trying to like argue the point because that's not the point. The call was not the point, but he was just frustrated with his team and just decided to take it out on me at that point in the game because it wasn't even close. And it's like, if you're getting that frustrated at seven-year-olds and then turning your ill to the umpire, it's like, what are you doing? Why are you out here? These kids are eight. I think a general rule of thumb with you sports is if you're having to one, stop the kids in the outfield from eating the playing surface or eating their own boogers, you probably shouldn't be getting too worked up about the final outcome of the game and your team's chances of making the playoffs. And two, do you know how hard, again, these are middle school kids, high school kids, I guess, college kids, sometimes depending on where you're at coach pitch or uh, kid pitch, but do you know how hard it is to umpire a game where the kids don't always know the rules, what's going on? Like, do you know how hard it is to make a call at third base when little Jimmy at third doesn't know you have to tag him and he's just pumped. He stepped on the bag and he starts crying when he realized he didn't make the right play. Like, as bad as youth umpires can be sometimes, like, one, cut them a break because that's not really the point of the game. But two, it's infinitely harder to officiate well when the kids don't know the rules of the game. You could take that all the way up through high school. It's why you get shoddy officiating all the way up to, like, smaller levels of college football. Because, like, when the quality of play is worse, the offic- it's harder to officiate. And I can't believe I just made a real sports example out of this. But I guess what I'm getting at is uh, <laughs> when little Johnny doesn't know that you have to tag someone, or you have a kid turned around away from the field eating grass, like it, it that's that's not going to be a tight ship in terms of how the game is refereed. So I don't know. Those made me laugh yesterday at the office. 
uh, for all those coaches out there doing it the right way. Thank you. We need more of you out there, but uh, my God, yeah, I know it's a serious problem in youth sports, but I couldn't help at crack up at some of the way the story is written. There are some, uh, there are some uh, literary geniuses on the Rebel Grove message board. The way some of these were worded were uh, hilarious. I, uh, I, I very greatly enjoyed them. So anyway, that's our show. That last part didn't really have anything to do with anything. I just hope someone out there found it as funny as I did, those horror stories at youth sports. We'll be back at it on Friday. We've got Greg's picks. Got something else in the works I hope is going to happen for the Friday show, but we will uh, we will have you ready for Ole Miss Alabama. I assure you that. Y'all have a great rest of your week. I'll talk to you again in a couple of days.